6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Proverbs, chapter 30. If you go back to Proverbs chapter 1, it opens up, as first sentence is, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And goes on to give you the reasons, to know wisdom and to receive instruction and so forth. The opening sentence of the book tells you who wrote the book. So all these names are, I believe, alternative names for Solomon himself. If it said the Koaleth, we jump right on that. Well, sure, that's what he called himself in the book of Ecclesiastes. Here, apparently, for whatever reasons, he decided to call himself something a little more mysterious, the collector. He apparently had like a hobby of collecting what they, the Scripture calls dark sayings. And uh, so in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, a wise man will hear when, and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain to wise counsels to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and what? They're dark sayings. You find that phrase throughout the scripture, here and there. Dark sayings. What does it mean by it? It doesn't necessarily mean sinister, like the dark side of the force or something. But they're dark in the sense that they're enigmatic. They're riddles. Okay? The word escheda, which is a riddle or a parable or an enigma, something to be guessed at, a perplexing saying of a question or a dark, obscure utterance. Solomon loved these things. Several places in Scripture, he is a collector of those things. And King Agor is simply his title as the collector of these dark sayings. Let's find out what else he says. In, in Psalm 78, he says, I will open my mouth in a parable and I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us and so forth. This is a very Jewish thing. It's a Jewish my uh, mystery, if you will. Dark sayings. Okay. Now, this king we're talking about is the son of somebody called Yake. Well, what on earth is Yake? You check your genealogies. I don't think you'll find one. Yake comes from Yake, which means carefully religious, obedient. Pious is a good uh, synonym, if you will. So King Agor is the son of the pious one. Okay, and if, if, if Agor is Solomon, then who is Yake? Anyone? David, exactly. So Agor is the son of Yake, a mysterious collector of wise sayings, and ostensibly now, he inspired counsels to Ethiel and Ukel. You start hunting for those guys, you got a problem. Let's find out what those words mean. Now, of course, the father of Agor would thus be David. Okay, then there's a sentence in the Hebrew that reads as follows, even the prophecy the man spake is the way you have it in your King James. 
That first word, realize it's on the right end there, the first word is hamasa. That's a word you're probably, you might be familiar with as the burden or prophecy. It's all through the prophets, the burden of Ezekiel. So, uh, the burden or the, the, the prophecy. Ha is the, the masa, the prophecy. Neum is the oracle. And hageber is the mighty. So these three words are a strange collection of words, but the, the best you can probably do is the mighty oracle prophesied. Okay, no problem so far. That sort of sorts itself out, at least tentatively. Now we get to this word Ethiel. The word means God comes or arrives, is with me. It's virtually a synonym for Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God with us. But it's a, it's a label of whom? Jesus Christ, indeed. And I'm going to suggest Ethiel is equivalent to uh, God arrives, God's with us, uh, pretty much the same thing. And, and of course, uh, Emmanuel is used in Isaiah 7.14 and also in Isaiah 8.8. 8. Well, let's take a look at this guy, Ukal. Ukal is a verb in the Hebrew meaning to be consumed. Really? What is, you know, what's going on here? God arrives... To be consumed? Is that what it's saying? How, how could that be interpreted? When did God get incarnated to be consumed? Well, you could say one way to look at it is the cross. But there's another way to look at it also. But anyway, we put this all together. Let's just tie it all together before we go on. The words gathered of the wise son of the pious father, the prophecy of the mighty oracle, that El, God, arrives to be consumed. The more you think about it, that's pretty strange stuff until you get to John chapter 6, where Jesus himself makes a strange pronouncement. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread... He shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're applying it literally, of course, and he's making, he's making a different kind of a point here. Going on. Then Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Now when Jesus says, I say unto you, that's an emphasis. When he says, Verily, I say unto you, that's a double underline. When he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, check it out. He is putting three underlines under it, okay? Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, whew, ye have no life in you. By the way, that's unlawful to a rabbi. The whole Torah thing is you never drink blood. That's what the whole issue of kosher meat and all that's all, that's all about. So this is not, obviously not just an idiom, obviously, but it's an offensive idiom. First point, I want to just subtle, make a subtle point here. Jesus isn't packaging himself in terms of their expectation. Just the opposite. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. 
As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. And on it goes. John 6, check it out. But here in the book of Proverbs, apparently, it's a suggestion, we have a prophecy by Solomon that the king Agar, the son of Yaakov, the pious one, that God arrives to be consumed. Whew. Well, Chuck, that's pretty far-fetched. If it's true, let's check it out. Let's go on and see what else he says. Proverbs, we're down to verse 2. It says, Surely I'm more brutish than any man, and have not the understanding of a man. That's, of course, in the King James. I neither learn wisdom nor have knowledge of the holy. The word brutish is actually a Hebrew word that means carnal or natural. Naturally, in the, we think of the word carnal adversely, as Paul uses it. But it means in the flesh. I am as much in the flesh as any man. He's incarnate. This isn't God just as a spirit. This is God in the flesh, okay? I am uh, as carnal as any man. The word man here is ish, which means mankind. In contrast to what he's about to say, I have not the understanding of Adam. It takes a little different connotation when you realize who's speaking and what he's really saying. I'm not trying to disparage the King James translators. It's clear they didn't understand what they're translating. Surely I am more natural or, or incarnate than any mankind, of mankind and, have, and have not the understanding of Adam, not limited to the understanding of Adam, what he's saying. And he goes on then to explain that line. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the holy. If you examine a Hebrew interlinear Bible, you'll notice there is no negative nor. The nor was added by the translators because the only way they could make sense of this thing. He doesn't say, I neither learned wisdom. I was not taught wisdom. That's what it says. All the difference in the world. It doesn't mean he lacks wisdom. It means he didn't need to be taught wisdom. And if you've been to Proverbs chapter 8, you know what I'm talking about from the wisdom chapter. Remember? I neither, I, I, I was not taught wisdom, but I have knowledge of the holy. It's positive, not negative in the Hebrew. The nor was added by the translator. There's no negative there in the Hebrew. I was not taught wisdom, and I have knowledge of the holy. So he's going to prove it to you in the next sentences. You ready? Here's what goes on in verse 4. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? It's asked in the sense, answer if you can. Who, it's, it, this will echo Job 38, when God gives Job his science quiz. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who has? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Think of that. Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. This is fabulous. Who is he, what's the implied answer here? Who is he talking about? God. All the way through here. Who hath, you know, and so forth. And he, God has a son? Absolutely. That's in the Old Testament. Here it is among other places. 
Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Put Hosea 5.15 next to that, where God says, I will return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. He's talking about the tribulation. The last verse of, uh, of Hosea 5. Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Check out Psalm 135.7. That's unquestionably the creator himself. Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Check Psalm 104, verse 6. Who hath established the ends of the earth? Psalm 72.8. These are quotes from the Holy Scriptures that are deliberately intending to link to none other than God himself. And that's who the king of Agar is talking about. And then we get to this zinger. I love this one. Psalm 110, verse 1. What is his name and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? Now, the reason I love this so much, this is the one that Jesus uses to quell the Pharisees. Let's take a look at that. Matthew 22, verse, starting at verse 41. Matthew 22. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, <laughs> saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? That's a good question, Pharisees. And they said unto him, Son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus is quoting the first verse of Psalm 110 here. If you see, if you're willing to say that uh, the Messiah is the son of David, how can David then say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool? He's quoting Psalm 110. If David call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. They're dumbfounded. They can't answer his question. And I love the next rest of that sentence. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. <laughs> I love that. Love that. But what's interesting, I read this many times. I never linked it to Proverbs 30, which is, is an echo of the same thing, see? Let's back, we're down to verse 5. We're making great progress here. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Every word of God is pure. That's saying there's no fun and games. There's no I gotchas. They're all straightforward. That's an important thing to understand. And incidentally, that's one of the factors that demonstrates that the God of Avram, Isaac, and Yaakov is the opposite of the Allah of the Quran. Because the Allah of the Quran is presented as capricious. He can do anything. That's a different kind, the opposite personality. The God we worship delights in making and keeping his promises. He delights in truth. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. And that echoes all through Daniel and Revelation and so forth. Then we get to the next few verses. Two things have I required of thee. And this is Agor 
presumably talking to God now. Deny me them not before I die. He's got only two requests. They're strange requests. They're interesting requests. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. That's interesting. He doesn't want to be rich and he doesn't want to be poor. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full, and deny thee, and say, who is the Lord? See, he doesn't want to be rich, because he may forget who his benefactor is. Make sense? On the other side of the coin, he says, or lest I be poor and steal, and take the name of my God in vain. I read this many times and figured, okay, that's, I think I understand that. He doesn't want to be rich. So he doesn't want to forget God. He's fearful if he became rich, he might forget God. Okay. He doesn't want to be poor lest he be tempted to do something wrong and steal. There's something else here that's very, very valuable to me. And that's the last part of the, that last verse. Lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. The act of stealing is misrepresenting God. And it's what reason this became so important to me, I felt for some time that the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, has nothing to do with vocabulary. It's not that simple. It has to do with ambassadorship. If you're going to take on the name of the king, you better be prepared and equipped and willing and committed to representing, him, representing that king faithfully. Or you're taking his name in vain. I think the gravity of the third commandment is far greater than most people realize, especially Christians, that go around and treat God casually. That's misrepresenting him. So that's, that's, a, that's a very dear verse to us here for a lot of reasons. Now, from here, relax. We're not going to spend this time on each verse <laughs> At this point, it shifts to, to the more comfortable pace of the book of Proverbs. We'll just go through. Accuse not a servant unto his master, lest he curse thee, and thou be found guilty. Don't meddle, in other words. <laughs> there is a generation that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation of how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. The false hypocrisy. You're probably saying, gee, we finally got a few verses that really fits today. Well, they all fit today, but these are very descriptive of our current charade that we call politics. This is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Boy, does that describe a large number of people in public life? There is a generation whose teeth are as swords, their jaw teeth as knives, to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. Boy, that doesn't require a lot of amplification. I think it's pretty graphic, pretty direct. The horse leech have two daughters crying, give, give. Leeches graphically depict the attitude of greed. The tenacious insistence on having more of whatever they desire. The horse leech had two daughters saying, give, give. And uh, 
Now, the next line is a pattern that we encounter frequently in the scripture. It's sometimes called the X and X plus one pattern. There are three things that are never satisfied, yea, four things say not, it is enough. We, we first encountered this probably in the book of Job, chapter 5, where Job uses that very briefly. We're going to encounter it a handful of times later in this chapter. There are three things, no four. Or there's four things, you know, whatever. It, it's a common pattern. What it's intended to do is not to make a, a complete list. It's not as a list means everything. It's just a way to stress the last one in the list. And uh, so... There are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things. I say not, it is enough. The first is the grave. <laughs> grave is never full. You and I live in a funeral procession. We're all going to die on time. Not a moment early, not a moment late. God knows what he's doing. The grave is never full. And the barren womb. Probably only a woman that's barren can fully understand the yearning. The earth that is not filled with water. You've been on deserts. You get the feeling of the idiom here. And the fire that saith it is enough. Fire will burn until there's nothing left to burn. Until it burns out. So it's drawing a parallelism there, of course, between the rest. The eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out and the young eagles shall eat it. Pretty graphic. <laughs> then we get another one of these little lists. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, for which I know not. For which... Four, the four, four, which I know not. There are three things which are too wonderful, too amazing. I can't understand them for me. Yea, four, which I know not. Then he lists four. The way of the eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. Now, there are all kinds of Attempts by commentators to say, gee, what do these four really have in common? And I think, to me, it, it, I don't think it's that much of a mystery. Each one of these things go where there are no paths. They go their own way, in a way that's unique. The eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I've done no wickedness. Boy, if there is a verse that describes our entertainment industry, in fact, our whole culture, but especially Hollywood, which is the vanguard of that culture, um, then adultery is okay. We, set, we have magazines devoted to find out who's sleeping with who lately. We, 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 we have to have a, a high-speed camera to keep track of the calendar changes of who's married to who when. They're on, they're off, they're on, they're off, and there's a whole industry that uh, gets paid for tracking who's with whom. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She, she eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I've done no wickedness. The casualness. 
In previous cultures, they at least had the decency to try to do it covertly or covered up, not flaunt it. For three things the earth is disquieted, and four, for, and for four, which it cannot bear. Three things that the earth is disquieted, and for four, which it cannot bear. These are things that we can't handle, we don't like. For a servant when he reigneth. Jeroboam was a servant that ended up leading a civil war and dividing Israel into two, 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 two houses. And uh, he was the first king of the northern kingdom. A fool when he is filled with food. That probably typifies the rich fool that Jesus talked about who built bigger barns, who obviously eating gourmet food at the time. For an odious woman when she is married, an unloved woman brings grief to the marriage. And a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. The idea here is that a poor, poor person that uh, was walked on is suddenly rich and becomes overbearing. That's sort of the, the implied idiom that's going on here. There be four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. We're going to see four things here as a minimum. These four things are each going to give us a lesson because they're small, but they're very clever. And the first one are the ants. They are people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. Little tiny ants, but they're smart enough to get ready in the summer because winter's coming. It says they're not strong, but they can carry nine times their weight on their back. I haven't tried that lately. Then there are the conies. They look like little rabbits, but they're not. They're, they're similar to rabbits, but they, they have long hair, short tail, round ears. And by the way, they chew the cud, which makes them, you know. Anyway, um, they are uh, feeble, thus meaning defenseless, yet they make their houses in the rocks, which is very clever because they, they can't defend themselves, so they hide in cracks and in the rocks and so forth. When you go up to En Gedi on the trip uh, up the valley, you'll, you go up the nature preserve, and you usually can see the conies up there. They're kind of fun. They're cute little things. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Proverbs. Download the K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the iTunes or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, as you study his word.